0: Tonight, an
1: 80s all-over Patreon-exclusive interview with the star of Red Dawn, Some Kind of Wonderful, and Back to the Future, Leia Thompson. And now, your hosts, Drew McWeedy and Scott Weinberg.
2: What are you guys going to do with this? Where is it going? I can't remember why I'm doing
1: it. Okay? Um, We have a Patreon page where people can pledge support for the podcast every month. And so we wanted those to be interviews with people who are in the films and primary to the films that we're talking about. With actors especially, it's a great way to talk about the whole decade and a, a wide range of topics.
0: Okay, okay. I'm going to kick off with the first one. And chronologically, your feature film debut was, of course, the illustrious Jaws 3.
2: No, Jaws 3D. Thank you very much. You're
0: welcome.
2: Convention <laughs> <laughs> is terror, okay? <laughs> no, that was my first movie. I had uh, lied and said I'd done other movies, but I hadn't. And so I w- it was a little bit of a interesting thing. But the great thing about it was my first day, you know, people are always talking about the, you know, standing on their marks and having to um, figure that out. Because that's actually hard, hitting your marks, because mm. you have to look in your peripheral vision and stuff, and so my first mark was actually standing on a um, a metal uh, thing and having the, the shark come out and bite me.
1: Did we like Jaws three back then? Well, I remember three D was that huge. That was the push. You guys yeah. were part of that initial push, and there was so much development on the film. Um, did you read any of the earlier versions? Layer like um, like when Joe Dante was going to do Jaws three people zero and was more the comedy version.
2: Yeah, I mean I was a nobody, so. I, I think my first or my, my only audition, I think might've been an improv. I remember doing a really long improv cause I don't, I don't know if they really had sides, but that was a long time ago. And I don't remember yesterday, <laughs> you know, I didn't really know anything. So luckily they were really nice, Bess Armstrong, who I was lucky enough to get to work with on Switched at Birth was, was really helpful to me and really sweet and, and helped, helped guide me through it. And so was Dennis Quaid, who I then started dating. And so, you know, they helped me through it because I didn't really know anything. It's huh. a very good movie.
1: <laughs> it's it's funny because there's, I always think of that, that time frame, And there's so many young actors who you guys were all sort of in that same group of people auditioning. And there were the ensemble films. Um for All the Right Moves, you were in one of the first movies where Tom Cruise kind of became Tom Cruise, and that was the year of that, where the outsiders and Risky Business and All the Right Moves came out, and so shooting any of that, was there a sense that there was heat around him, or was All the Right Moves, it's such a small film in a lot of ways, and an intimate film, did you just, were you just making that and not focused on any of the outside stuff?
2: Well, I remember our, I, again, I remember the screen test, I remember our uh, test at at the in, at Fox, with uh, I remember The Office. I remember that he was just as nervous as I was, and he had done The Outsiders, which he, he you know he wasn't very sexy in, and, and he was also really too short to play a quarterback. I mean, he's not very tall. That was a big deal, and he was really nervous. He had already shot Risky Business, but it hadn't come out, and I'm not sure there was any heat on that. But I remember they were really excited about his future you know, like what he would turn into to being. But I, I remember being just as confident as he was or actually helping him with his lines.
0: Did he seem kind of uh, green or was he confident at the time?
2: No, I mean, he's always been, and I think he still is, you know, he, he lives in a very, um, whether it's real or imagined, a real polite space. He's very polite and gentlemanly and...
0: Was it easy working against him? Was he like generous with it as far as because you were a newbie too? So I mean, was he
2: very, very, very generous, very kind? I mean, he was so generous that I had the. uh, I remember I was very uncomfortable because it was required nudity in the in the movie. It was the time when girls always had to take off their shirt, and um, I I didn't want to do that. And so I had actually auditioned for a different part, and when I a smaller girl part that it said I would have to take off my shirt. And, um, when I got the part, I was still kind of uncomfortable and there were two, two times when I was supposed to take off my shirt and he talked them into not having me take off my shirt the first time. And then the second time he said, look, let's both be naked. I mean, that's how generous he was. I mean, honestly, that's kind of cool. And so he's completely naked and I'm completely naked. And
1: I think that's an interesting point because that is it's very memorable because it is um, equal in that scene. And at the time, there was that sense that it was almost always there was an excuse to get girls naked in movies. But that scene was played between the two of you, and it felt like. In a lot of ways it's more honest about that experience of in, in high school when you had that big moment and you crossed that line. I think they because both of you are very vulnerable in it scene, it feels like it lands more.
2: Yeah, and that was the goal and that was his help. You know, he really he helped me. He stood up for me. He was a good guy, and I think he still is.
1: That that
0: film must have come as a big relief to you after it came out. Because not only now it's Jaws three in the in the in the rearview mirror, but now you have a real film and a good film under your belt that got a lot of buzz at the end of the year in in eighty three. I was curious did, when you signed on for Red Dawn. Was that like an attempt to go completely against the the girlfriend grain?
2: Yeah, I mean Red Dawn was just a it was a great script, a great idea, and it was just an opportunity to like be a. Uh, Boy, which was really a fun idea, and you know, I even though I didn't have very many words in that, I just thought it was really fun. You know, I think that people they actually kind of all thought that they found me in like Johnstown, Pennsylvania, that I wasn't even really an actress, which is kind of a compliment, but also kind
1: of. Mm-hmm. So
2: <laughs> no, I mean, it was uh, it was just it, it still remains the most fun I ever had making a movie, Red Dawn.
1: You talk yeah. again about, I mean, like like the outsiders that ensemble with Patrick Swayze and C. Thomas Howland, and Charlie Sheen and Jennifer Grey, and then the adults in it who are such a great lineup of character guys. Um, it seems like that's a that's a great environment, and then to have John Milius, who I I love him as a storyteller in person, I love him as a personality, but on that film, you want to talk about the perfect uh, mix of personal politics and sort of pop culture. That that was the moment for Milius to make that film.
2: Yeah. And if you think of the film now and what's going on in the political world right now, it's so weird, you know, Mm -hmm. so freaked out. Uh, I know Jennifer Ray and I, because we're so liberal and we were in the middle of this kind of crazy right wing movie. But like, how do you like now, like, how do you how do you like put it all together? You know, because it was so, you know, Russia was the total enemy. And that's what made. And now it's like flipped. Like all the conservatives are like, yeah, it's fine that everybody's talking to Russia. <laughs> can, I don't know how to make Red Dawn work, you know, at this moment. And it, I yeah. think also some of my fans' brains explode because they don't know how to, like, you know, the super conservative gun owners that loved Red Dawn now are like defending all this other stuff. So it's all so confusing. And Red Dawn's in the middle of all that.
0: And it's- I always uh, like to look at it like. Uh, A high, very broad fiction. You know, I never looked at it like a political film. I just looked at it like a comic book action movie. And I remember because we're all about the same age. I remember when I first saw that Red Dawn trailer and the the parachutes popped open. We all knew that movie was going to be a big hit. We just knew it. Everybody knew it because that like, oh, my God, what if? What if paratroopers really did land in mid, you know Middle America? It was such a cool concept, and and that cast, like Drew said, that cast is great. And you did some nice work in that movie. I mean, it's you said you don't have a lot to say, but you are good in that movie. Um, yeah,
2: I tried. but you know, it also I was also I watched a movie. Uh, I went to see Logan. I was horrified by the amount of violence in it, and I remember that at the time, Red Dawn was considered the most violent movie ever made.
1: Well, you guys, it's interesting because you were right at that moment where the PG-13 came into being. And I remember, I think Dreamscape got the rating first, but you guys were in theaters first. So technically, you're you're it. You're the ground zero for the PG-13 where they were, were trying to figure out, is violence its own category? Why do we give a film an R? What is an R anymore? I, it was such a—and to be part of that, to see that conversation unfold as a film fan— right at that moment, and to be sort of on the forefront of it where our audience, my as an audience member, I wanted movies to treat me like an adult and to treat things frankly and not to be restricted from being able to see that stuff. So um, this movie sort of landed at the perfect time, and not only that, but it then it taps that nuclear fear that we had, the Russian fear. I can't think of a movie that embodies the 80s in many ways more than Red Dawn.
2: It's a really interesting movie, and when you watch it again, Patrick Swayze... And see Thomas Howell cry a lot. Oh, yeah. They cry. They cry about their dad. They cry about the people they killed. They, you know, they're affected by the death. They're, you know, which is really interesting. And this is what really upset me about and upsets me about a lot of movies now. There's just so much violence and people with knives through the heads. And no one, you know, all these people die and no one seems to care. It's just terrible. And all these guns shooting, I mean, you know, Red Dawn, Red Dawn is just complicated and it's a very interesting movie. Also, you don't see anything. You never see the towns that are getting exploded. You never. You only experience this in Calumet or wherever it is. I, I still have a t-shirt. The fake town that they created, you only see the, these kids' perspective of the violence and it, it, it makes it, it's like an indie movie now, you know, the way it was made. It's like a tiny little movie, really.
1: How was Milius? Because, you know, he's legendary for... And he'll tell you these stories. Like, you know, staring down studio executives with a shotgun that he brings down from the office. And getting into huge arguments about the things that are important to him. And I love that about Milius. But that larger-than-life persona, I always wonder how that then translates to him as a director. Especially working with a largely young cast in this movie.
2: He was uh, oddly, you know, super respectful of us. And I, I liked him. But, you know... It was a different time. I mean, there was a lot of time we just sat around waiting for him. So I don't know what he was doing, but he was wacky, that's for sure. But I really liked him. He was always nice to me. He called me beast woman. He never, <laughs> he never tried anything weird with the girls around that were acting and everything. So you know, he was a character. We had fun. The cast had a lot of fun. You know, it was just a, it was just good to be like in boy in camp movie camp.
0: We'll move from one ensemble to another. Uh, one of the things that Drew and I have discovered covering only a couple of years so far is that sometimes good movies just disappear. And it's not because they're bad. A lot of times it's because of rights or music rights. And that brings us to your next ensemble movie, uh, Cameron Crowe's The Wildlife. You got to share some stories with us about Cameron Crowe. I haven't seen the movie in 20 some years, and I'd love to see it again. But just just give us some anecdotes or, or some memories about Cameron Crowe
1: in, in well, the early 80s. And I'm fascinated also by Art Linson, who we've talked about where the Buffalo Rome already on the podcast, because I, I, it's so strange to see a guy who is such a strong producer. And then as a director, his films are, are much more, I think, uh, interesting and naughty than you would expect. They're, he's not the guy that necessarily you would think he is just from his films as a producer.
2: Art Linson? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure that Art Linson was, you know, like he, he not a, never really went on too much to do more directing. I'm not sure yeah. that was the real house, but I liked him. I mean, uh, oddly enough, you know, it's weird because this is what sticks out in my mind about the wildlife is um, two things back to boobs. Um, they cut my boobs out of it. I, they made me take my <laughs> shirt off in that movie in a scene with Hart Bachner. And so I was like, okay, if I have to to do this, let me make it really sexy. So I, we made the scene really, really sexy, even though it was stupid. It was like, I think it was written on the script, like her boobs pop out like donuts. (laughs) So I was like, this sucks. And and, um, Hart Bachner was my neighbor. He lived literally next door to me. And so um, we were like, if we have to do this stupid scene, let's make it sexy. So we did. And during the preview of the movie, I was sitting next to my boyfriend, Dennis Quaid and uh, Sean Penn, whose brother was in the movie. And we got, we got there and the whole audience was like, and they got to that scene and it was dead silence. You could hear a pin drop. And, and so the scene just stopped the movie from its yuck, yuck, yuckness. And uh, they cut it out. They cut my boobs out of a teen exploitation movie, which was a great, great victory of mine. <laughs> I don't know. I like, I also remember that in that movie, I was supposed to cry in this scene with this, the same with, with Hart Bachner when he broke my heart. And for some reason, it was the only time in my 35 years of crying in every movie I've ever done that I couldn't cry. And I remember Art Linson screaming at me, cry!
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'll and do it.
2: I, I know! So I was always like, <laughs> That's not the best direction, honey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is it weird to an actor, though, how sometimes some movies uh, get brought up over and over and then other ones that are just as good just kind of disappear?
2: That's very good, honestly. It is interesting how they disappear and how some of them stay. Like, is it my next movie? No, my next movie is Back to the Future, right? Yeah, uh, Yeah. Well, you know, some other movies that I thought were bombs have become classics that people love.
1: A number of uh, the cast members in uh, The Wildlife are people who um, I'm fascinated by because I they didn't go on to larger careers and they were so interesting and vivid. I'm fascinated by Ellen Mitchell Smith on screen. Weird Science in this. He is such a unique presence. And Jenny Wright remains just the unicorn from the 80s. She's this fascinating actor who we saw in so much and was so great. Um, and then, of course, Rick Moranis famously kind of stepped back from the business to raise his family, which I, I have nothing but respect for. But man, do we miss Rick Moranis as a result. Um, can you talk about some of these actors uh, and just your memories of them?
2: I, I'm not sure I was really good friends with Jenny. She was a little tough, like a little, you know, she wasn't she wasn't that nice <laughs> at yeah. the time. You know, we didn't, I, she, I remember that that she was a very, very um, aloof you know, kind of person and very beautiful. And, you know, I was always in, I've always been a feminist. So I've always been like, I don't want to be that person that doesn't support other actresses, even if they're in direct competition with me, you know? So I was, I was mystified by that. Um, You know, like with Jennifer Grey and I, we're still friends. I still love her. We were like, go girl, you know, the whole time, you know, we tried to be like that and I, I don't remember that from Jenny Wright. but um, I love I love
1: seeing that where there's long-term friendships that are born at the beginning of careers I I know last time when we talked to Nancy Allen she spoke so so glowingly about like Wendy and Joe Sperber and people she worked with at the beginning of her career who they stayed friends forever and I think it's cuz you guys you you made your bones together there's there's that sense that you were learning your craft at the same time and you and there's that support that hopefully you threw behind one another as as cast members and things
2: I think that it is important to try to support each other and um i've tried to do that maybe some people don't think i have but i have definitely tried to especially with women i've always just been really sensitive to women supporting each other because you know it is it is much harder to be a woman in hollywood than a man i mean Mm -hmm. it's hard to anybody in hollywood but to be a woman is an actress is 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 always hard so i know that cameron was always really really great i really loved cameron he was funny and humble and super interesting, and I'm I'm sorry that I never worked with him again.
0: Yeah, I think uh, what Drew touched on is part of the reason that the wildlife has become kind of a an un, not even a, a popular cult, but sort of an underground cult film because it has a lot of good actors. Who didn't go on to much other work. It has some other very good actors who we know from dozens of other things. It's got great music. And it's got like it's the cousin to fast times. It's a really interesting movie that when we cover it a uh, couple episodes, several episodes from now, we're hoping we turn some people onto it. And I, I think Drew agrees with me. We're gonna save your chronologically next film for the very end when we do the trilogy all together. I, right? I
1: think that's such a it's such a big thing to talk about that. Yeah, we'll 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 hold off back to the future, and uh, we'll, we'll come back to that in uh, a few.
0: I, I would like to share a quick anecdote uh, with you, if I could. Uh, we saw the the Challenger disaster happen in my school, and we were shaken by it. And I know that it's been widely reported over the years that, of course, this tragedy had a really negative impact on the box office of Space Camp. And it's a really fun family sci-fi adventure movie that deserved to make some money had really bad timing. And I'll tell you the truth. I saw it and it made me feel better. It honestly did. I, me and my cousin saw it opening night. And Space Camp is exactly the kind of 80s movies that Drew and I are trying to uh, trying to applaud with our podcast. So uh, kudos to you on Space Camp. It's kitschy and it's fun.
2: It was really hard movie to make, but yes. Was it really? My favorite story about uh, Space Camp, which is true, is the first day we were 10 days behind.
0: Oh, God. oh my God.
2: they literally had no idea how to shoot it. So it became this epic disaster where basically we get maybe one or two shots a day um, for months. Like we'd come in, we'd block then they build. It was a, a complete disaster.
0: Were and you happy uh, with the final product when you, when you saw it? Did you think it was a fun movie or?
2: I thought it was OK. I did. But I mean, no, I mean, I, I was I was not I was. No, it took six months. It was really, 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 really hard to make. We had a lot of laughs, though. If I want to think about something that was positive, um, Tate Donovan, Kate Capshaw, Kelly Preston, uh, Larry Beast and good uh, cast. and uh, Leaf, Yakeem Phoenix, we were stuck in these sets for hours and days, we up, up on gimbals and stuff like that, and wires, and we just laughed our heads off. I mean, I... I I shudder to think of the outtakes that they would have of us because, you know, those are two great, you know, great women. You know, three of us great women were, like, just hilarious. I mean, and Tay Donovan was really funny, and we just had a lot of laughs.
1: Yeah, Joaquin, at the beginning of his career, um, you know, River River was such a um – Sensation. There was such a, a such a bright light around River when you saw him the first few times in films. And what I found fascinating about Leaf in his early movies is how utterly not like his brother he was. Like it, it wasn't a case of, well, we'll just get his brother and it'll be a lot like that. His energy was totally different, and he's been very true to that th- throughout his career. Even as a kid, there was there was something complicated about him, and that's I, I think is always read on film.
2: He is a really great guy, and he was a really great kid, and we were all felt very um, motherly towards him, um, you know, because his parents were kind of hippies, and was, he didn't really know what was going on, and all of that. And he was just this really sweet kid, and we we adored him. I mean, I recently start, talked to him about it because I, I wanted to say, like, you were a great kid, you were the best, and. I hope that experience that we were helped you and that we were good for you. You know, I, I just really wanted to talk to him about it because it was so interesting. We spent so much time together locked up in that thing, and of course we were swearing but trying to be nice. You know, <laughs> catch ourselves, and he was very patient with us.
0: Uh, Drew, have you showed Space Camp to the, the boys yet?
1: No, not yet. Um, it's it's one of the ones, Toshi is now finally at the age where science has clicked as a thing that he loves, and now he's interested in marine biology and outer space. And I think he's at the age now where it's the, the right kind of thing for him. Like, he'll really enjoy that side of it, that living out the actual physical dream.
2: Yeah, and it really was, uh, a lot of people have come up to me and said that they became physicists or scientists because of space camp
1: i mean those are incredibly important films for that because yeah like star trek did that but space camp is real world and i think it did for a lot of kids remind them that it's a job that it's a thing you can do and that's crucial
2: i just spent some time with the people do you remember when they just found this like black holes colliding the sound you Mm -hmm. know the whole science this was a big deal even though it's really hard to comprehend like who cares? But it was <laughs> a big deal. And I met these scientists who who were studying these like minute particles of pictures of gravity. And I met them and they're like the geniuses of, in the world. And they were like, yeah, one of them was like, yeah, I became a scientist because of space camp. And I was like, oh, <laughs> my God, if you can just change one life, your work is worth it. And that was, it made me feel happy and proud.
1: That brings us to. I, I'm fascinated by this movie. I really am. And it's it's so interesting when you look at the, the original comics and you look at what Howard the Duck was on, on the page, it was so counterculture and it was so uh, uh, anti-establishment. And it was very much a product of a time and a place. Punk rock comic By book, the time right? that by the time that movie came around, and by the time it had gone through the George Lucas big studio filter, it becomes a radically different thing. Were you even how how much had you read? How much did they give you before the movie, or did they really do their best to say, okay, the movie is the movie, the book is kind of irrelevant as we start this because they're such different animals?
2: They, they delivered every single one of those comic books to me, and um, I read them, and I, I really appreciated the counterculture kind of silliness of it but let me tell you and this might sound controversial but I was thinking about that when I was watching Logan and I did not like that movie it was too violent and it didn't seem like a comic book to me and I thought you know what Howard the Duck being the first Marvel comic book movie ever made into a film I'm proud of it I mean now I am I never have been but I, I I can't stand all these
1: this violence it's just well it's it's it is its own thing and it it is very much i i think in a lot of ways it's a reflection of how 80s how the 80s thought of adapting any sort of movie like it it, there was a shape to 80s films and howard the duck very much is shaped like an 80s film not like the comics working with uh huck and cats in particular you know they are such architects of a lot of the other stuff that we are fans of throughout the early 80s and late 70s, this was a moment where they finally got to be center stage and take control of everything. How were they as uh, collaborators and for you as an actor?
2: You know, they made a lot of mistakes. (laughs) Um, The biggest one is that the movie's too long and they were too concentrated on whether the duck mouth worked with the stupid, like, they were too... I kept thinking, like, this is not working. I could tell. They had some terrible puppeteer, uh, lovely people. They weren't very good actors doing the off-camera jokes. When the movie was done, I was like, they they could have hired anybody to improv over that movie and recut it. So that, like, you know, the mouth moved and then they cut to me. And then, you know, so somebody, some great comic, which they had the opportunity to hire any great comic to improv around that movie and make it have more life. And they didn't, they obsessed with hiring Chip, who was lovely, but he wasn't, he just did the lines and yeah. he did more. It needed more, um, yeah, more air breathed into the, the character. And, you know, it really was difficult with the, the mechanical duck, you know, obviously when they, when they remake that movie in the next 10, years, I'm sure they will. The Or not remake that movie, but redo that character. You know, it'll be that animated thing with the floppy, you know, like the way it is in Howard the Duck, that floppy duck, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, my,
0: my, My Howard the Duck question might be one that you actually enjoy answering. Because obviously it's a, a lot of people love it, like a cult movie, but it did get trashed. But even the nastiest reviews that I read had good things to say about you, about Tim Robbins. Every single, uh, virtually every review, even if they hate the film, they say, "Oh man, does T- Tim Robbins gives it his all, and Leia Thompson is really charming." When the movie is just reviled, but you're you are considered part of the silver lining. Does that make it feel any better, or no?
2: Um, that was a real hit. You know that movie that took a, that was hard on me. I mean, it probably honestly destroyed my movie career. So, um. I did. We gave it our all. I mean, I did. I gave I, I gave it everything I had, and it was six months of shooting, so it's
1: a lot. It is the human element of that movie that if you have affection for it, that's very probably where it hangs is on the people and the performances.
2: Yeah, and I love my Howard the Duck fans. I mean, I think that they're... I, I love them. I love people who, who decide to, you know, really have affection for something that's really crazy. And I'll, I know a lot of people... Watched that movie and some as kids and their parents kind of didn't like notice what a crazy movie it was. So I, I think I, I think I helped form some iconoclastic minds, which makes me happy.
0: Uh, you and I have talked about this on Twitter before. I know that it's a special movie. I want you to explain to everybody, Drew knows, but I want you to explain to our listeners why specifically some kind of wonderful is so special to you.
2: Well, yeah, some kind of kind of wonderful, um, well, also it was really nice because Howard the Duck had just opened and Some Kind of Wonderful was just going into production and they had just fired the, the actress in my part. So I was in shock and my friend um, Eric said, you know, this director, Howie Deutsch, already offered you this part like four months ago and you turned him down. So want to look at it again? And I was like, I got to work. I got to work because I'm so freaked out. And so I took the movie and then I, you know, I I enjoyed the experience and I enjoyed Howard Deutsch so much that I married him and I'm still married to him. And Mm -hmm. it's been 30 years. So we have two children, one's 25 and one's uh, 22. And, you know, it's a very sweet movie. And I I think that movie really holds up. I think
1: absolutely, this is a guy and we'll, we'll get back to talking about him when we talk about back to the future as well. But uh, you want to talk about an actor who I, I love not just for the work he did on screen, but because he is the definition of resilient. He's a guy who took maybe the hardest hit you can take in this business as an actor and not only endured, but I think has flourished. And that's Eric Stoltz who I, I just, I think he's terrific on screen. And you guys repeatedly have worked together. Um, can you talk about just, just him as a as a scene partner, as an actor, as somebody that you've known for as long as you have?
2: Well, yeah, I did The Wildlife with Eric Stoltz, I did Back to the Future, and then I which he was inspired from, and then I did after that, I did some kind of wonderful. And you know, he is he's beautiful and funny. I mean, I don't think anybody ever got to appreciate how funny he is, except for in his directing. He was just so funny funny and had such a different way of looking at the world. Sometimes it got in his way at, when he was young and you know might be one of the reasons why he got let go of Back to the Future. But, um, I, I think he, he's a wonderful actor. He always tried to see the scene from a completely opposite point of view than what perhaps the writers, you know, intended, which is a really interesting technique. And you know, I just always thought he was beautiful. I really, lo- I really cared about him. I really loved him. And I, am sorry, I never have gotten to work with him as a director or vice versa, that I've never gotten to direct him. I think that would be really fun and mm.
0: interesting. Uh, Leah, one of the comments that I've seen over the years attributed uh, to some kind of wonderful, and I, you probably know where I'm going with this. A lot of people dismiss it or compliment it as a gender reversed pretty in pink and i don't i don't really see it <laughs> I, i'm wondering if you consider that a fair assessment or I, an a- accurate assessment
2: i think the whole feeling of the movie is much different than i agree. I, I think it feels like a completely different movie i mean you know, the actors are so different but it's it there's a certain gravitas to the movie i think well i know well, i personally prefer some kind of wonderful to pretty and pink but I mean, even if I wasn't in it, because I just there's something very, very serious about it, like that I liked, you know. And I think Mary Stuart Masterson's great. Oh, she
0: is. And, uh, she is so the whole the whole cast is great. Elijah Kutai is also scene stealer. But Mary Stuart Masterson, if she had been nominated for that movie, I wouldn't have batted an eyelash.
2: No, she was great, and that's the reason I turned it down the first time because I knew that was the better part, and I wanted that part. Mm-hmm. But, um. She was great. Uh, you know, everybody was really great. Uh, Elias was, oh my
1: God. He was, I, I love Elias. He is a guy who, what a face. honestly, a, a great movie face and a great actor who always brings something to the table.
2: Yeah, genius.
1: And, and a
0: really fun part, too. I, if, if I could play any part in Some Kind of Wonderful, I would want Elias's part. <laughs>
2: Yeah, right. it's, you know, the, the opening of that movie is so great, and the uh, music is so great, and you know, there's really nothing that's, that, that I I think, I think my husband did a great job on that movie, and that's the movie I'm talking about, that wasn't a, wasn't a hit, it's considered right. a real disappointment, and people love this movie.
1: And the people that love Some Kind of Wonderful, it is a movie that they are fiercely protective of, and that they share. Oh, and yeah. I, I, I think movies like that have a real longer life than movies that were a hit but didn't really leave a mark on anybody these are yeah. the movies that that endure and that people talk to you about and that they you know I it's the kind of thing that somebody will walk across a room to talk to you about because it meant something so significantly uh,
0: I loved some kind of wonderful so much that I had the album on cassette. And that Irish version of Can't Help Fallen in Love, oh, my God, it gives me goosebumps. I, I absolutely love it. And I I not to shortchange Pretty and Pink. It's a very good film. And our listeners should know, of course, that that film was also written by John Hughes and as well as directed by Mr. Howard Deutsch. So they really do complement one another. You, If you want to be real simplistic, you could say Pretty and Pink is the girl's version and some kind of wonderful is the boy's version. I don't buy that. But I think they go together really well.
1: This is one of the reasons that I'm I'm so pleased to be doing this podcast because it means we get to talk about some of the some of the guys who were formative, some of the artists who are formative, and some of the films that genuinely shaped that decade. And you can't talk about the '80s without talking about Bob Galen's Bob Zemeckis together, and without talking about Back to the Future, the trilogy. For me, it's all three of them because I think they are brilliant in the way they break genre in the way they play with expectation in the way they talk about even sequels as ideas you guys did something truly unparalleled both with the first film and then with the the trilogy um can we just talk first about when you read the script and when you were were brought in to talk about the film for the first time
2: uh when i read the script i thought it was genius i thought it was a great part um i was so excited about it. And sometimes you don't know, you know, you don't know if uh, you think you're going to be good in a part and you're not. And this one, just like the old Lorraine, the young Lorraine, they all, I, I got it. So I was like super excited to audition for it. And, um, you know, it was obviously a big movie because Steven Spielberg was producing it. And remember, I remember my screen test really well. I remember that, uh, how kind and lovely, uh, Spielberg was and he was working the camera I remember it was an amblin that still exists that they're still there and uh it looked like Taco Bell to me and <laughs> I remember the whole thing and uh and then I remember my final screen tests with the the final candidates for Marty um, I remember one of them was uh Thomas Howell who I'd done Red Dawn with and so, of course, he was the one I, I wanted to get the part because I knew him. And I don't remember who the other girls were in my place. Maybe they didn't let me know. It was just a part that I really understood for some reason. Sometimes you just channel people. And I did a lot of work on that script. I just recently yeah. found it. My real my
0: my script. When you're doing a comedy like this, and it hinges, I have to say it, it hinges upon an incestuous idea. How hard is it for a young actress to be like, all right, I really have to nail this balance or (laughs) the movie sinks, you know, Uh, it's such a dicey scene when you first meet Marty. And it's so it's still so innocent and sweet.
1: I think the attraction is one of the one of the greatest things you guys get to play in that because there's a connection that is immediate, ineffable. But you're misreading what that connection is. And it's fascinating.
2: I think that it was very nerve wracking for Bob Simakas. But he had, there were all these massive plot points that hinged basically on the acting scene. And that's hard for, um, for directors because that means they have to count on us to like pull it off. And it wasn't more, it, it was less when I met him, but more that whole sequence in the car. When I kiss him, I remember mm. how nervous they were because the entire script had to change at that moment. Mm. And, When I fall, uh, you know, when I go, it's like kissing my brother. And they they were brilliant enough to kind of hinge it on a joke. Mm -hmm. And I I wasn't cognizant. I didn't understand how important those moments. And when I had to fall back in love with Crispin, you know, when he reaches out and picks me up off the ground when I fall back in love with him after he saves me from... From him and the way that they lit me, the way the music was, the way Crispin was—Crispin was brilliant.
1: Oh, can we can we As, talk for a moment about Crispin? Because yeah. he is that performance, truly
2: brilliant.
1: one now, of the great eighties performances.
2: He should have gotten an Academy Award nomination for that. He was brilliant. I, uh, I just
1: unbelievable, and and the change. We, I I always say that one of the hardest things to play is a transformation in a film, a real, pivotal, my life just changed transformation. And, you know, like Scrooge always depends on that that moment of, okay, now I'm a better person. Crispin plays one of the greatest ever, and he plays it with such honesty that you buy 100 percent. That guy just became a better person. It just happened. And I saw it. Yeah, um, I, well, you guys—you well, guys are wonderful together in that film. You. What's what's great about that? Uh, the
0: whole the chemistry between everybody in that movie, and again that that whole bit. If you don't get the tone of the first scene when she meets Marty in the bedroom, if you don't get the, uh, not just the actors but everything—the screenplay, the lighting, the editing—if you linger on the shot too long, then it's, it's suggestive. It's perfect. I mean, it's like the Casablanca of comedies, and even if you'd never uh, forget the sequels for a second, when you see something that like will be remembered and still like adored by families in a hundred years, that has to just, your heart has to swell. You just have to feel great about something like that.
2: I do feel great because it was a great part and I did a great job, you know, which is not always the case. I can definitely say sometimes I didn't do as great of a job, but it was a great part and Mm -hmm. the casting was, I mean, we were all giant too. Like these; these are not small performances. No, giant no. performances. These are big, big performances, and all kind of different styles. I mean, you know, we all made very big choices, and Bob Zemeckis was down for letting us do that. You know, a lot of directors would have been like, "Maybe you should dial that back." You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe uh, Chris Lloyd shouldn't be like.
0: That. oh, no! He's amazing kid. Not to bring it down a little bit, but it is a fascinating piece of movie history, and everybody in the world loves Eric Stoltz. I'm just curious. You're on the set. You come in one day, and you're just told he's been replaced. Did you just? I mean, what's the reaction?
2: Um. Well, for me. I mean it was awful i you know that's the thing there isn't always always just i mean there's very few films where there's just like yay you know there's always something that's like yeah thing about it and that was really upsetting um because i mean i could see their point of view and i thought it was fascinating because some i don't i haven't read the books or anything like but i somehow watched online the the footage they released of of eric stoltz as marty mcfly and you can definitely see it i mean he has a sadness about him
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: that wasn't appropriate you know which is what he brought to some kind of wonderful there's this there's a deep sadness and um i i don't think you know i remember him saying something like that at the end of the read-through about how it's really sad that everybody he loves remembers a whole past that he doesn't remember that he remembers a different past. And that's that's a
1: great way into it and not something that, yeah, I think people always think of the happy ending and they don't ever see that other side of it. And that's what makes Eric's point of view. So fascinating. I know for years, I, I, when I met Bob Gale in the early nineties, when he first moved to LA, all I asked him questions about were, were that was that footage. I was so fascinated by what must have happened, and by how different a film it must have been, with everything else the same around him, and that, and yet, clearly, when you see Michael opposite Crispin Glover, it's Crispin that gets to play the sadness and gets that arc that he gets to play, and Michael is this ine- this unstoppable sort of force in the movie. It's a it's a very different dynamic than I think what you're describing. What with what Eric would have brought to it.
2: Eric was bringing a more like a, you know, coming out of the 70s sensibility of how to be an actor. And and I think that w- when I watch it now, Michael's bringing like, he has a massively big performance. You know, he would do double takes, spit takes, ball, you know, every shtick, like kicking. He spent all this time sliding over cars and kicking his board up and practicing how to get into a door. Oh,
0: Leia, you're going to make me turn on Back to the Future right now if you don't stop. <laughs>
2: Well, so hard on all those details, but they were sticky details. They were stunty de- details. They were like, uh, you know, like like I said, like Buster Keaton or or um, you know, uh, Charlie Chaplin.
1: It's one of the things that makes him a perfect hero for a Robert Zemeckis yeah. film because I think Robert Zemeckis is when I think of used cars or this or Roger Rabbit, what I think of is that crazy clockwork precision of the way everything has to come together and how. He seems to orchestrate that better than almost anybody. Um, And Fox seems like the kind of guy who is super precise with physical details as an actor. And that that seems like the right marriage, Uh, like their sensibilities fit.
2: And it was the right lightness to to carry this kind of crazy story uh,
0: forward. Did you know from the minute that the movie came out or the minute that you wrapped that there was going to be a sequel or when did that when did the part two and three come up?
2: No, it was many years later, and they didn't ask us to sign sequel deals, so um, they didn't ever think that it was going to be... It was a different time. I mean, mm. you know, I, what what I always am shocked about was that Back to the Future was the number one movie for that entire summer, except for one week, where you it. not even in the top, like, 70 highest-grossing movies of all time anymore. Like, it's way down there. Like, but how did it... It must have been such a different business. I mean, it, it was, was
0: a sleeper hit. It was it was just number two or three. It was it was there for every weekend. It was just people just kept going to see it.
1: And nope. yeah, when we've been talking about the end of the year, like you'll see no, number five or six for the year in nineteen eighty 1980 or nineteen eighty one. Those movies made fifty million dollars, and it was the number four hit of the year. It was such a different business in terms of numbers, and I think now what is considered a hit. It is one of the reasons we don't make mid-range movies for adults anymore. that cost like $35 million because financially that's just a weird gamble for them now. It's either got to be gigantic and be aimed at every single person on the planet, or it can cost under $3 million and then you can kind of make a movie about whatever.
2: It's a really weird business right now. I don't understand it at all. I mean, I think like Netflix is making $20 million movies now. It'll never be seen in the theater. It's crazy. And they're spending $20 million. It's like such a weird business. I can't, I can't understand it. And you know, and I watch like, I'm harping on this. I'm sorry, but I watch all these previews and it's all guns, all guns, all guns, all guns. guns. I mean, who's going, I don't want to see that. (laughs) Well,
1: one of the, one of the things that I remember, because when back to the future two and three came out, I was managing a theater and I went berserk at the idea that there were sequels coming, much less two of them back to back. And then once you got to look at the the first one, once you saw part two and you realized the ambition of what you guys were trying, I I was all in. Like I love part two. I love the idea that it's a sequel that runs parallel to the first film. Oh, it's a, not accurate. It.
0: Like then, I always had the impression that it was a remarkably difficult part two. Was re- true or false? Because it seems like part two was a crazy difficult movie to make.
2: It was, and what we started shooting it, and and then they were like, oh, just kidding. We're going to shoot for a year and we're going to separate it into. Oh, God. And uh, that was weird. And, you know, I know from just talking, doing panels and stuff with Bob Smakas, is that, you know, he considers it his darkest movie he's ever made. <laughs> I don't know if that was before he made Flight, but. Uh, it was a dark movie it was a strange ass sequel
0: mm-hmm. it and takes a m- it's I think it's because and Drew you probably think this feel the same way I guess they realized they were gonna go back and make it part three would be a Western therefore lighter therefore part two can
1: act as the darker act two but well, there's some, the idea of pushing GIF yeah. center stage and Thomas Wilson I oh. that's you as much as I love his work in the first film and I think he's great in the first film what they asked him to do in part two and part three is so outrageous and so crazy. And God bless him. Thomas Wilson came to play on those. Yeah. Things. He's great.
2: He's a genius. He's unbelievable in those movies. He is so good. And he couldn't be more different than this. I mean, you know, he, uh, he was so great and so funny and all in, but that's what I'm saying. We all were big. Our actual massive and and you know he was there but it was also i think the movie was also complicated by the fact that they did, didn't want to use crispin so they had to figure out how to hang him upside down and i mean kill him that's, a heart,
1: that's a heartbreak as a fan i felt yeah. i can't imagine it you guys as performers especially based on how beautiful that relationship is in the first film what it must have felt like for you guys to have to not get involved or not pick a side on that, but just to not have him to play opposite must have thrown it into a very different feeling on set.
2: Yeah. It was specifically difficult for me because, you know, we were locked together. Like, so without him, I couldn't have as good of a part. Probably, you know, I'm, I'm, I felt grateful that they even bothered to put me in and, um, especially back to picture three, I, I don't have much to do in Back to the Future 3. Back to the Future 2, I have like a crazy performance. I mean, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, I'm young, I'm old, I'm 80, I'm 47, in two different ways. And I'm like, you know, redoing the whole sequences in the, the first movie from a different perspective. And
1: Your you know, prosthetics must have been a wild ride on that second film.
2: Yeah, they were. They were.
1: <laughs> I feel bad for the script
0: supervisor for Back to the Future too. That's who I feel bad for because it's our, like I've seen it six times and I still have trouble like putting it in chronological order.
2: I know it was there, but they were so smart they could yeah. make stuff out. We'd be like, "Okay, just tell us where to stand. We don't really know what to do here, but we'll just do it."
0: But and I think it it goes back to what we were talking about before is. All these giant effects budgets and crazy time travel concepts. but what we're we're t- most interested in are the Lorraine and the Marty and the Doc. Without you know colorful, interesting, well-crafted characters, you'd have we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, you know uh, So you know uh, while everybody says back to the future the screenplay and the concept is the star, I say Leia Thompson and Michael J. Fox are the star.
2: obviously. Obviously, people love the movie. They still love the movie. They watch it all the time. And it was a really great crafted idea, you know, to take a time travel thing and really focus it on a family, something we can all understand, Mm -hmm. to really focus it on on these moments that seem like nothing that end up changing your whole life. You know, this is important stuff.
1: And how revolutionary an idea is it just to see your parents as human beings and as teenagers, because that is the hardest thing for, I think, a lot of us to ever do is see your parents as who they were before they were your parents. And you guys, that, that is such a beautiful way of articulating it and getting to play all that emotional stuff. I think that's what, what makes the first film such a special screenplay is emotionally and thematically, it's all one piece. There's, it's not a gimmick. And then it also does this other stuff it's all together like it works because of what it allows you to do
2: i think so and i think that it's it has an amazing it works on so many levels for so many different ages you know and that's what they're always trying to do and it's always impossible
0: when i tried to when i tried to convince people way back in the 80s before it was a giant pop culture iconic movie you wouldn't sell the movie on oh it's about time travel or oh, it's about you would say it's about a guy who goes back in time and hangs out with his parents in high school. Boom! People want to see that movie, and uh, if and when they ever make Back to the Future, it won't be half as good. Uh, I don't care. They they will, but it won't be half as good. Yeah,
2: they. I, I guess I believe they can't really do it until Bob Zemeckis is gone because he owns. Oh
0: God. Well, may he live to be 250. Exactly. Yeah. I hope Bob Zablickis lives forever then. <laughs> Leah, thank you so much for sitting down with us.
2: Thank you. It's nice to talk to you guys.